And then I discovered that the reason I didn't like the music was because it was pop music. And for some strange reason, my brain just didn't acclimatize itself to pop music at all. Welcome to My Way, a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. Sunny here. Welcome to episode 28 of My Way. This is the first half of a conversation I had with the legendary South African DJ, Chris Pryor. Known affectionately as the rock professor, Chris has lived an adventurous life, and like so many of us Greytonians, he is finally taking time to stop and smell the King Proteas. And lucky for me, and all of you, he agreed to sit and chat about his life as a fervent martinet in the consumption and distribution of rock and roll music in South Africa. And when I told a few folks in the village that I had interviewed him, they waxed on about how much Chris Pryor's show meant to them in the 1980s. So many South Africans were starved of rock and roll music, and Chris committed his entire life to dishing it up. And he still is, every Thursday night to be exact. And I'll give you details on his show at the end of this episode. But in the meantime, let's rock it out with The Rock Professor. My name is Chris Pryor and um, an advertising agency many, many years ago, back in the 80s, came up with the name of The Rock Professor, which is what I've been known as ever since in this country. And I'm certainly best known in South Africa because I've been a broadcaster since 1978 as a DJ. Prior to that, for 10 years, I was a radio journalist. So people got to know me on the airwaves. And um, when I became a DJ, I had this sort of, still have this sort of more or less serious, not frivolous approach to talking about the music, which earned me the moniker, the rock professor. Mm -hmm. So I didn't come up with it. The advertising agency did. But people know me as the rock prof. I was born in Durban in 1948. I turned 70 not so long ago, and I'm feeling every inch of it, I'm afraid. Mm. Um, I've lived a very hard life. I've um, abused my poor body badly by just sort of catching 20-foot waves and falling down and breaking things and motorbike accidents and squashed for 10 years and so forth. So I'm quite broken at this point, but I've got to say, I don't regret anything. Mm. I don't regret anything that I've done in my life. I um, think I've, I've lived it to the best of my ability. I've tended to throw myself 100% into whatever I do. And um, because of that, I think I've become relatively good at what I do. I suppose my first real memory of my childhood was getting lost at the Rand show. It was a show, and I think it still takes place on an, at an annual uh, on an annual basis in Johannesburg, and it's a big sort of um, funfair trade show. It was just a sort of traditional thing for Joe Burgers to go to the Rand show uh, each year. And I remember getting lost when I was about six or seven. And eventually I ended up at, with some lady who uh, announced on, uh, you know, 
you know, the uh, the, yeah, the intercom throughout the showgrounds that this little boy, Chris Pryor, is, is lost uh, and you can pick him up. And my brother and my mother came to pick me up. And my brother, with whom I'd never got on very well, uh, we... Um, We've always been sort of sibling rivals, I suppose. I don't know, he's three years older than me. He came to me and he burst into tears and he said, you don't know how much we love you. <laughs> and I mean, that really sort of stayed with me, you know, because it was the last kind of thing that I would have expected from uh, from my brother. Yeah. I had a lovely, lovely uh, family, I think. Um, I, my mother was uh, a German. My dad was an English sailor, uh, actually in the Royal Navy. I think they met in South Africa. Um, she came here as a young woman just before the war with her mother to escape from Germany uh, because her, her mom was Jewish. So they got away from Germany and they came to South Africa. She met my dad, Dick Pryor, the sailor, and um, they got married. And they had my brother and I, Robin and I, and um, they were divorced some years later, uh, and she remarried, and then had they, uh, she and her new husband, uh, Charles, who was also a Royal Navy sailor. They had two little girls, Melanie and Juliet, my half-sisters, whom I love beyond description. My mama was a breeder of little dogs, toy poodles, miniature poodles, and dachshunds. So we always had this big pack of dogs around the house, running around. So we were always very sort of dog-oriented. My mama was uh, a show breeder. You know, she used to take doggies to the shows and win awards and all the ribbons and all the rest of it. So it was a very sort of um, a friendly household. Because she was a breeder, a dog breeder, um, she had a dog parlour when, uh, when I was still a little boy. When she was divorced from my dad, um, she really couldn't afford to keep either my brother or myself at home. So she sent us to boarding school. Um, I, in fact, went to boarding school when I was about six. And I was at boarding schools all my, pretty much all my school life. Um, we shifted from school to school, but at least I managed to see my family on weekends and school holidays. So that was wonderful. And that's when I enjoyed, um, you know, the home life. From the dog parlour, they eventually got a boarding kennels for animals, for dogs, and for cats, mind you. Then she passed, and my stepdad eventually sold that and retired. And he, too, has passed now. I think I had a very nice childhood, you know. I grew up as, I suppose, a privileged white South African. And um, there wasn't a lot of suffering, but I personally rebelled against the strictures of the country and the way they were behaving to the majority of the population. And I eventually left this country when I was 18. And I went to Australia. I just matriculated. I'd worked with the SABC for about a year. So I, as soon as I could, and as soon as I was given um, a free pass from the army, because in those days they had conscription, I missed the conscription. I was one of the lucky ones. I missed the ballot. I was one of, one in 27, I think, missed the ballot, and I was one of those. And eventually they sent me a piece of paper saying, you're not liable for any training, and don't bother keeping us informed of your address. As soon as I got that piece of paper, I left this country. I went by ship to Australia. 
I lived in Australia for about 16 months trying to save enough money to get the heck out of there again. It was during that time um, when I was sort of in my early 20s that I became very uh, spiritually oriented and I was reading a lot of um, philosophers, Thomas Mann and Thomas More and a variety of uh, religious kind of things, Zen and Christianity, um, I delved into all of that. I found a very close affinity to theosophy, Madame Blavatsky and those people who, despite the fact that they had a very strange aura about them, nevertheless said things about the spiritual life that made, meant a lot to me. And um, eventually I came across the writings of a guru in India, Swami Muktananda Paramahansa, I wrote to him, and I must have been about, I guess, 20. I wrote to him, I said, please, can I come and stay with you in your ashram? And some months later, I got a letter from him saying, come, feel free, you know. Mm -hmm. So I then made my way to India. I lived in his monastery for a year, his ashram, outside of Bombay, a little village called Ganeshpuri, where everything was strictly segregated, men and women, it was um, an ashram that concentrated on chanting and meditation. So that was what I did for a year, and I was completely withdrawn from life. I had to give them my guitar and my passport when I arrived there. And, you know, we didn't play music or we didn't indulge ourselves at all. It was completely, an, how can I say, um, it was a spiritual existence. You know, we were obviously vegetarian and you couldn't get involved with what was going on in the outside life. You were involved with what was going on in the ashram. You worked in the ashram, you worked in the rice paddies, or you worked with the cows, or you painted, or you dug in the garden. We got up at 3.30 in the morning, we would meditate until sunrise, and then the daily work would start. So, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, it was a very strict regimen. I, because of my sort of journalistic background, um, became an assistant to the secretary of the teacher, of uh, Swami Muktananda Paramahansa. The secretary was busy publishing uh, books that um, Muktananda had written, and I had to help with the translating, well, not so much the translating, but correcting the English and just getting it sort of typecast and, and, and done right. So that was eventually my work in the ashram. Mm -hmm. After a year, I, I just realized that I, you know, I didn't have the confusion that had driven me there anymore in my brain. I had achieved a sense of understanding of what I was about because that really was what took me there was a simple confusion about life you know and why and the reasons why we were here i think these are all questions that young people tend to ask themselves most young people tend to eventually abandon those queries and just get involved with life you know mm -hmm. and work and this that and the other for me it was it became the be all and end all of everything and i became depressed and and just utterly disillusioned with life 
until I found the writings of Muktananda and I was able to go there and, and live in his ashram and live in that atmosphere of spirituality, which kind of eased my brain and gave me an understanding of where and what. It actually answered my questions. Maybe it didn't answer, but at least it gave me a philosophy which I could live with. You know, I was no longer depressed. I was no longer confused. I more or less understood what I needed to understand. So I left the ashram after a year. I went back into the world. I went to initially to Goa in India and stayed there for a few weeks. But, you know, the, it was a, a big hippie mecca in those days. I'm talking now early 70s. I had my 21st in the ashram, so that's how young I was. And in fact, I didn't even know it was my 21st. I got a letter from my sister six weeks later, came by ship, happy birthday, Chris. And I suddenly realized, oh my God, my 21st has gone by. So that was quite quite funny. Anyway, I spent a couple of weeks in, um, in Goa, uh, but there were just too many people. From the ashram to a sort of major hippie center was not the right place to go. So I then made my way up into the mountains, the foothills of the Himalayas, north of Delhi. I lived in a place called Almora, and I stayed there for another year and a half. It was one of the most spectacular places that I've ever lived. I had a view of the Himalayas from horizon to horizon. I lived in a little garden cottage of one of the big old English estates that they used to have during the British Raj. It was just marvellous. I think I was spending not much more than $30 a month on accommodation and food and smokables and all the rest of it. So it was really a, a wonderful, wonderful existence. Then I carried on traveling. I ended up in Bali for uh, uh, about six months, which was great, body surfing. I went back to Australia once or twice. I came back to South Africa eventually after eight years. My mum had been involved in a car accident and we thought there was going to be a problem, so I came back to South Africa. I always intended to carry on travelling after that, but in the end I remained in South Africa. Got married, stayed with my first wife for about 10 years, then we sort of grew apart. I lived as a bachelor for some years, then I met Nadine and we've been married for ooh, 25 years now. So um, I think this all started from how was my family life. Mm. My family life was good. <laughs> and do you keep in touch with your brother today? Yes, I do. Uh, we, did, we, we never really got on all that well, but now it's possibly better than it ever has been. We do communicate uh, over the telephone. And he lives in Clarence in the Free State. And yeah, we, I get on with him. I always rebelled, and it's been a problem with in my entire life, I rebelled against authority. I always thought that I knew better than everybody, you know, which I found to my horror, I actually didn't really, but that was my impression. So it was a struggle, and um, my mama had to move me from school to school. When I was about 14, I was having serious problems at, at school. She decided to send me to Germany family friend of hers by name Carl Olbermann ran a group, a sort of a super boy scout group called Nanero to Wandervogel. And these were young people who wandered around Germany and Europe in lederhosen with tents and guitars. And it was just a youth group, a sort of super boy scout. 
And I, they owned, oddly enough, two castles, two ruined castles, which they were rebuilding in Germany. And I went and lived with them for about 15 months, I guess it was. Eventually, my mama said, no, you've got to come home and complete your, your schooling. Um, I did, in fact, go to school in Germany. Um, but it was very difficult, it being, a, you know, the, the second language and so forth. Although when I went there, I had no German. And by the time I left there, I was dreaming in German. So I spent 15 months when I was young, and I guess that was probably what instilled my, my travel bug. I never got my matric. I was the most appalling student. I really was. I'm not stupid, but I was lazy, you know. Mm. But I'd already been hired by the Star newspaper. In fact, I'd won a scholarship. The Argus, Argus Group in those days owned the Star and the Cape Argus, and, there were, and the Daily News, I think, was one of theirs. Anyway, there were newspapers all over the country that were owned by the Argus Group, and they had a cadet course for budding journalists for six months in Cape Town, and one could apply to this. Hundreds and hundreds of people applied to for, to get it, and 12 people got the scholarship, and I was one of them. So I spent six months initially, immediately after I left school, doing that cadet journalistic course. So it didn't really matter that I didn't have the matric qualification. As soon as I had that piece of paper from the cadet uh, school saying that I'd passed, I went to the SABC because I wanted to get into radio. Uh, well, that was the document to have if you wanted to be a journalist in those days. So it was perfect for me. So I joined the SABC and as I say, I was with them for about a year before I went overseas. But um, I had a good grounding in journalism and that's actually what supported me during my travels. I would um, do little radio reports on tape recorders or I would write magazine articles for South African magazines and radio stations and also for Australian magazines and radio stations. And that's basically how I kept uh, earning money over the years. While I was in India for, uh, for two and a half years, I would do, again, little journalistic pieces. And that just made me enough money to just keep my head above water, you know. And in the end, I think after 10 years as a journalist, I became essentially sick of the of the profession. I, I, I didn't like I didn't like the fact that one had to seek sensationalism in order to get news to make news. You know, I was much more a sort of magazine kind of guy. You know, I could write about the silly things in life rather than, the, you know, the serious things in life. But anyway, after 10 years as a radio journalist and a successful one, I won awards. I reached, as far as I was concerned, the peak of my profession as a radio, radio journalist. Um, I worked with very well-known radio shows. Radio Today was one of them, a morning show, a news show in the morning, and audio mix in the evening, which were both on the English service in those days. But I achieved what I needed to achieve, and then I became bored because... Music had always been a big hobby of mine from from my early teens. It had become a, a major part of my life. I became a DJ and because I had an appropriate voice for radio and I knew music and I knew rock music, uh, which was a very specialised form in those days and still is, I think, I became a rock DJ. Essentially 40 years later, I'm still a rock DJ. I still have a very, very small audience in comparison to what, you know, other sort of morning time jocks and your popular 
talk show hosts and that kind of thing. I have a very small audience, but it's a very specialized audience and they're a very dedicated audience and they've been with me for years and years and years. I've been fired from pretty much every radio station that I've worked because of my speciality. I re- I've always refused to play the pop music of the day, you know, what, and, and the radio stations are always eventually insisting that I try to fit in some of the red of their stations format into my show. And I would say, yeah, 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 no problem, but I never did. And eventually they would fire me. So I've been fired from, as I say, most of the radio stations that I've worked with. The one that I've managed to stay with is the one that I'm with now. And I've been with them for about 12 years now. Radio Today, it's called. 1485 Radio Today. And there I do a weekly show, which has been going on, as I say, for about 12 years. And has got me around the world on podcast. I'm very happy with the way it's going. It's a complete hobby. I mean, I make no money from it whatsoever. But the nice thing about my show is there are no commercials to disturb it. So I can just play the music and just chat about the music. In the 80s, when I was with Radio 5, which was a commercial radio station, I mean, every 15 minutes I would have to stop for two or three minutes and play commercials. So it was just very, very dull and boring. I hated that. Um, so yeah, and uh, so essentially the music has kept me—it's kept my brain active at least—and I've been able to indulge my hobby mm. for all of these years. It's keeping me busy in this little village too, you know. I mean, uh, I have been working up until this month. In fact, oddly enough, was my final salary that I earned at my regular job, which was working with my wife's business. Um, but now that's gone, and now it's just this music that's going to keep me from complete and utter senility. You know, when I first started listening to the radio, there wasn't an awful lot here in this country when I was a youngster, except for a radio called LM, uh, Lorenzo Marx Radio, LM. That was our main radio station for specialized stuff, stuff outside of the pop field. But just listening to the radio, I realized that I didn't really enjoy anything that was being played. I didn't like the music. And then I discovered that the reason I didn't like the music was because it was pop music. And for some strange reason, my brain just didn't acclimatize itself to pop music. So where other people were listening to the Beatles, I was listening to the Rolling Stones, you know. So I was looking for the blues. I was looking for the rock. And because, as I said earlier, I throw myself wholeheartedly, 100% into everything that I do, I just threw myself into music. And eventually I became relatively knowledgeable about rock music and blues. And when I became a DJ, that was what I, that was the kind of music that I played on the radio. And um, it was interesting because uh, in those days, now I'm talking, well, 1978 was when I first started doing this show. So rock music in itself was a relatively new phenomenon, you know. When I started playing Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and Black Sabbath and that kind of thing on the radio, nobody else had been doing that. So that was why I became known as a specialist within the rock music field. And I just maintained that specialized field throughout my career I've never abandoned it and it's looked after me well you know I've uh, I've enjoyed it very much but as I say it's led to problems with radio stations and in the end I've found that I've just had to move from radio station to radio station 
let me just say, it, it was difficult to find stations that were prepared to keep me for any length of time. Radio 5 kept me for 11 years, which was pretty good throughout the 80s. But again, in the end, they wanted me to start playing their pop. And um, I tried briefly to accommodate them, but then in the end, my, my brain just rebelled and I had to leave it. So rock and roll was a, a sort of an integral part of my life for all those years. And because it's um, a, per, a personal interest, um, I've, I've followed up, I've read the literature, I've kept on with, uh, you know, buying the music that is in that field. And it's just become entrenched within me. It's just part of me. It's part of my makeup now. I think there is much more intelligence within rock music than there is in pop music. Pop music, you're looking for, you're looking for something that will appeal to the vast majority. So it's always going to be of a lighter nature than rock music. Everybody's looking for success, you know, but some people are not prepared to squander their integrity in order to be successful there are you know there are musicians who like Joni Mitchell is a very good example who've simply stuck to their guns and remain doing what they do throughout their career that's pretty much what what what, what I've done with the kind of music that I play but for me it's always been an intelligent music in fact my first spiritual advisors were within the rock music field. They were musicians. Country Joe the Fish, uh, the leader of their country, Joe McDonald, he wrote lyrics that had great relevance, not only to me, but to all of my contemporaries, you know what I mean, in terms of spirituality and understanding of what's going on in life. Those musicians spoke to us. Pearls Before Swine was another band. Tom Rapp was the leader of that band. He wrote lyrics that were just so intensely personal and relating to the spiritual problems that we as youngsters were facing in those days. Possibly, we, you know, this, the youngsters of today still face the same thing, but certainly in those days. In fact, that's what drove all of us hippies out onto the road in those days. I mean, I must tell you, when 1968, I was 20. I understand it was the perfect time. You know, and that was the psychedelic era. So I was right in the thick of it and I was exactly the right age for it. So when I was traveling in the East, I came across hundreds of hippies like myself, just like myself, who had exactly the same spiritual confusion and questions and needed to resolve them. So I th I was, I'm just very fortunate to have been born when I was born and that I had the ability to actually leave this country and travel around the world and meet people of a similar inclination. And that was what was so fascinating for me of, about living in the ashram for me was there I suddenly I was surrounded by people who had exactly the same goals and aims that I did. Toy poodle breeding, lederhosen, ashrams, you just never know what's going to be involved in a person's backstory. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, but wait, there's more. 
Tune in next time for the second half as he talks more about rock music, an unlikely spiritual advisor, and how he ended up in this funny little town called Grayton. If you'd like to check out Chris's weekly podcast, and I highly recommend you do, simply Google The Rock Professor or go to crips48.podomatic.com. That's K-R-I-P-S 48.podomatic, P-O-D-O-M-A-T-I-C.com. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and follow at Podcast Cowgirl on Facebook and Instagram for photos and updates. Thank you so much for listening. I really mean it. Thank you. See you next time.